Welcome to the New Books Network. Greetings, New Book Network listeners. This is a podcast on history and literature, and today I'm with the author of Interwar Itineraries, Authenticity in Anglophone and French Travel Writing, Dr. Emily O. Whitman, and your NBN host, Nathan Moore. Emily's research interests are in the topics of international modernism, translation studies, autobiography, contemporary world literature, and creative nonfiction, all of which is to say that being an associate professor in the Department of English at the University of Alabama has welcomed the topic of today's discussion, which is life writing or travel writing. And from the time of antiquity to the present, that has a lot of resonance. Um, After pursuing and achieving a BA in philosophy at Yale, she traveled the world and finally attained a PhD in comparative literature at Princeton while also studying classical Arabic. She has written and co-edited volumes such as The Cambridge Companion to Autobiography, Modernism and Autobiography, The New Midlife Self-Writing, and now her latest publication, which this podcast is about, Interwar Itineraries which came to us this year in 2022. Emily, can you tell us a little bit more about your publishing history and how it is a part of your travels abroad? Hi, yes, uh, it's an interesting question. Um, Well, I would say, first of all, travel literature grew out of an interest in travel myself, but also an interest in um, kind of what I would say is the problematics of travel. And then also, uh, so coming from that interest in my own journeys to kind of find myself in various places of the world, but then trying to look at that um, activity through a critical lens, which is what I've done, I think, in this book. I mean, not my own, not looking at myself, but looking at these interwar writers who were also trying to um, find themselves, find authenticity and so forth. So, so I would say that would be would be what I would say about that. How long was your research process on interwar itineraries? Um, it's been about five years now. Um, I'm an unusual scholar in that I always keep a couple of things going at the same time. So I worked on my monograph, uh, the new uh, the new midlife self writing and this book together. So while I was waiting for peer reviews, I worked on the other one and so forth. So I would say about five years now, but the research, some of the research was done a while ago and, and never used. And so I, I dipped into that, uh, which, which comes from an earlier date. But as far as sitting down and writing this book, I would say about five years now. And why travel writing? What What is the interest that you have in travel writing and what sets it apart from research that you've done up to now? Well, I think, uh, again, it's the interest in travel from my own interests in travel uh, that are stemming out of that. But I'm interested in life writing overall. So things like autobiography, memoir, and I include travel literature in there as well, because it is a form of life writing and self-writing. But it's also a kind of writing that takes into account the other and writing about other people and other cultures. So it's kind of like a two-faced kind of writing. So I would say um, that's what sets it apart from my other publications in life writing is this gesture toward the other, wherever the traveler may be going. 
and writing about. Yeah. And so what is your perspective on travel writing? What is it fundamentally um, about? I know this book's about Anglophone and French writers in particular. Um, Where's your book really situated in the world of literary scholarship and time period wise for history? Um, Time period wise is the period between the two world wars. So sometimes called the interwar period, although I guess that can be a bit confusing because one can say, well, what wars, right? Um, but travel writing is something that became, it was, we've always had travel writing, but it's something that became of interest to scholars in the 80s, pretty much through the work of Edward Said and Orientalism, where he talks about some of the problematics of travel writing and uh, othering people and so forth. But then it grew to um, really, now it's a, a very uh, sturdy subdiscipline with all kinds of uh, scholarship. And uh, I would say the ones that I am closest to are the ones that talk about travel writing as a kind of translation of culture and compare the traveler to a translator. So, I mean, again, this is apart from the part of self-writing and self-confrontation and travel writing, but talking about capturing the other, capturing to the place to which uh, the traveler is going. And there seems to be a big focus for you uh, thematically on the idea of authenticity. I think you argue you argue uh, in the book that it's authenticity that writers in the interwar years, particularly before World War II, are dealing with. Can you explain what you mean by authenticity? Yes, I mean it's 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 difficult to do because I don't think the writers themselves were always absolutely sure. But I would say authenticity and authenticity of oneself is a true self-inventory. And a lot of these writers were doing that, taking these self-inventories, taking the temperature of themselves and their time. But when it comes to travel, there's also an idea of an authenticity of place. And again, this is problematic, but I'm talking about what people were thinking about at the time. And places were seen as authentic if they hadn't been um, taken over by colonialism to some degree, but also if they haven't, if they're off the beaten path. So when one had an authenticity of encounter, if one was meeting people who had never met uh, a European before, or if uh, one was going to a place that was rarely visited. And that's why so many of the travelers in the book head to um, Africa. I'm always loath to say Africa because there are so many countries and I like to be specific, but they do go to various places. So I I guess I can put it that way uh, because it is a place that is underrepresented in travel literature and also uh, not as well visited as some of the other places people had gone before that, but opened up more during the interwar period than it had been before. So people with varying agendas went went there, but also went other places as well. I mean, I talk about Spain, I talk about uh, Mexico, I talk about uh, the Middle East and, and other places as well. So there's a whole variety of places that people go to. But again, the idea would be going places where one would have an authentic encounter, which would mean an encounter with somebody that um, one is thinking is in good faith in, in communication with. And again, this is a really problematic notion, but this idea of being untouched or un, 
un, uh, dam not damaged by the outside world. So for example, when Graham Greene goes to Liberia, he doesn't, uh, or Sierra Leone, sorry, he doesn't like it that much because it's colonized and he sees uh, the, that people are kind of like between uh, East, uh, West African and European cultures. And he wants what he thinks is a kind of purity of encounter. So you can see just from the words I'm choosing it, that it's very problematic. And that's one of the reasons to go in there and find out what, what was going on. Why, why were people thinking these kinds of things and doing these kinds of things? So it's not necessarily a book. I think there are many kinds of books. It's not necessarily a book that embraces and uh, seeks to champion all the writers in, in the book who do these things. In fact, I, I can be quite critical of many of their enterprises. So it's one of those kinds of books where it's not, it's not necessarily, uh, you know, I love Proust. I'm going to write a book about Proust detailing why I love Proust. It's, a, it's more complicated than that. I do like a lot of the writers, uh, but I do see also there were a lot of problems in terms of how they conceptualize travel, in terms of how they conceptualize the other and so forth. Yeah, um, the travels of authors like uh, Hemingway, who uh, I know visited Cuba very, very often, places in New Orleans, um, and also East Africa. Um, can you tell us more about your comparative approach when you were writing Into Our Itinerary and some of the authors that you interpreted? Well, yeah. I mean, here's the thing. I, I look at writers from the American, uh, English, and uh, Francophone tradition. So it's a comparative work in that. I mean, it's daring. One, one sometimes wants to talk about just one national linguistic tradition, but I felt there were such similarities between them that I would open up a really interesting discourse around that. Um, Hemingway is actually the only real American that I treat in the book, and I, I treat him. A, I, I treat him for a whole chapter, and then again for another half of the chapter. And you're absolutely right; he was in Cuba. He lived in Cuba for for a long period of time toward the end of his life, and uh, he had a notion of places being spoiled, and he was always looking for the next place to go that was unspoiled. So the, the, the book I write about, uh, it was the first book I write about, Death in the Afternoon, is about him going to the Spanish bullfight. And basically, it's a book about the Spanish bullfight, but it's really a book about Hemingway. And so many of our um, books are like that. They have this, well, this book is about you know, Sierra Leone, but actually it's about, it's about Graham Greene. Or this book is about um, you know, the slums of Paris, but actually it's about George Orwell. So that's that's in there, and I, I found a lot of um, convergence between people in those traditions. I do have to limit it, unfortunately. I'd love to do a wider comparative study, but um, I have to limit it to languages that I know and I can work with. I, I want to limit it to languages that I can work with in the original. I also can work with German sources, but I didn't find that that was particularly fruitful in terms of what I was doing here. So I didn't extend the project beyond English language and French language uh, texts. Yeah. Um, a person of interest for me was George Orwell. Um, someone like that, yeah, really challenges our notions about social order. Um, what ideas about rebellion or like questioning authority uh, makes it into your book? Uh, that's interesting. That's an interesting one to think about. Uh, Shirley Orwell himself was 
questioning the social order when he went to um, down and out in Paris and London, when he went and uh, became a uh, dishwasher in Paris and lived in a kind of a compromised situation. But he always, I mean, I think there's not, I wouldn't say hypocrisy, but there's always something kind of problematic about a middle-class person kind of adopting, um, going to live for a while in a rugged situation and then reporting on it as if it was a real experience, even though there was always a way out, if you see what I'm saying. Um, you know, Orwell was never going to be stuck in, in, in the um, back room of a restaurant, you know, hitting mosquitoes and flies and, and being uh, people swearing at him and so forth. He, he knew he had a way out. Someone like D.H. Lawrence is, is, uh, is perhaps in a more interesting fashion challenging the social order. Um, perhaps not as much in this book, but overall, D.H. Lawrence, uh, everywhere he traveled, he was looking for an alternative and an alternative to, uh, well, English, the English way of living, of course, but sometimes he would say to Western man, although at times he felt like he found it in uh, Italy and in Sicily. So it wasn't something that necessarily was outside of Europe. But I would say that he, he and his wife, Frida, they traveled from place, they were itinerant, traveling from place to place to place, always looking for, um, always looking for some kind of hope and some kind of model, even coming to the United States at a certain point in New Mexico and trying to understand that there and trying to understand things through um, indigenous people. And so he, yeah, I would say, I would say he's the most, um, the one perhaps in, who travels in the best face, as problematic as it is, he's going in the best face, I think, to find something, uh, find something, a different kind of order on its own terms, not to project his terms onto that, but rather to be a recipient of, of other kinds of wisdom, other ways of living. But as you can see in the book, he kind of fails also a little bit. What is the reasoning about uh, structuring your book? Is it chronological? Is it based on a methodology or some logic? How did you structure it? No, you know, that's really interesting. And that's a great question. Um, there is a logic. I'd be hard pressed to say exactly what it is. But uh, the way it worked pretty much is I wanted to start with the stuff about Conrad and the French tradition and this idea. So that starts earlier. So this, uh, the chronological can get... Uh, the, the before is this creation of Conrad, this uh, ultimate traveler and the ultimate authentic being. So we start with that. Uh, but then moving on, organizing it, I think organizing it uh, so that the first two chapters after that are dealing with um, different variety of different places, Spain, and then in the third chapter with, with all kinds of different places. But then I go into the... Uh, the uh, we should say the chapters about Africa. And so those are separated because I wanted there to be coherence between them. I didn't want to write about one and then go back to writing about Persia or Iran now, but it was Persia and, and then go back to having Africa again, but rather to have it all situated together. So that would be the logic for it. And then of course, at the end, um, in the terminus, I call it, I look at war, uh, work during the Second World War, and I talk about uh, inward travel narratives. I argue that the impulse for authenticity and the impulse for 
important self-encounter uh, is frustrated by you know the inability to travel during the forced forced immobility during the war years but i argue that the writers i look at turn that search inward and 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 look through the hinterlands of the self for for their authenticity which is uh ultimately i think a less problematic um way of looking at things than to say i'm looking for authenticity through through someone else using someone instrumentally to find their authenticity what about modernism? Is this is there a transition that you see towards modernism, or is a lot of the writing modernist already? Well, I would say no. Actually, I would say modernism, at least how I work on it. I'm working on a, another book right now on modernism as such. Is more an affair of the elite, and it's a very not a very big movement. I mean, we talk about it now. And, you know, a whole semester will go to modernism, so many books and conferences and so forth. But ultimately, you're not dealing with a large number of writers. Um, so, so I wouldn't, I mean, we could say Hemingway's an American modernist. I don't know. But most of the, until the terminus and, and, and the, uh, that last chapter where I talk about inwards, uh, inward uh, journeys, self-confrontations, that I'm not necessarily dealing with modernists. I'm dealing with a parallel tradition, perhaps one could say a more popular tradition um, than, than modernism, which, which as I said, was often an affair of the elite. So it's dealing with some modernists, but it's coterminous. It's dealing with the same time period and not necessarily with the same writers as might be looked at, the James Joyce's, the Ezra Pounds, the Virginia Woolf's, and so on. I talk about that in the final chapter, but not um, in the terminus, but not before that. It was really reminiscent of um, the Harlem, Re Harlem Renaissance. Um, there's like this pushback identity, um, the, or, and you mentioned the identity of otherness. Um, in what ways did you address the French or Anglophone writing identity? Is this a sort of niche identity um, that comes about before before World War II and after World War One, um, yeah, I would say I, I would say <clears throat> excuse me, I would say there is. I would say there was um, after World War One absolutely a disillusion, and that's what I'm talking about in the first chapter is what happened. Excuse me, what happened? What happened after uh, World War One? And it seems that one of the main tropes in the book is nostalgia. And people believing that the kind of experiences, the very fabric of the kind of experiences that people were having would no longer be possible in the way that they had been before the First World War or before ships with uh, steam, you know, with sailing ships. So Conrad being the ultimate example of someone who is authentic and one could be nostalgic for. So, um, you know, a lot of a lot of big truths with a capital T were shattered after the first or during, I should say, during the First World War. So I would say that um, most of the writers I look at are reckoning with that, reckoning with the war. And most of them are young writers and they're reckoning with a world in which they've uh, lost their faith in their um, superior, I'm not superiors, they're elders, I guess I should say that's a better way to look at it, the figures of authority, the people who push them into war to begin with. Um, so I would say that would be uh, something that would, uh, the, another thing that would unite the American, the English, and the French would be the sense of interwar malaise 
and the sense of disillusion and this desire because of that to travel to places that haven't been, um, you know, uh, destroyed by uh, by American English or European man, right? Places that were still seen as safe or authentic or pure or however problematic that is. That was definitely part of it to go back and see if there was another way of communing with an earlier point in history. And, and that's interesting too, because uh, those writers really spatialize history when they say they want to go to a certain place. A lot of times they talk about going back in time as opposed to just going to another place and being the same time like it really is, right? They station the time so that you can go back in time by going to different places. So that um, spatializing time is some, something they really do a lot. And I think it has a lot to do with the First World War and the desire and nostalgia for earlier times, even times that they never experienced, if that's possible, nostalgia for something they never witnessed but read about and, and yearned for. And what about existentialism? There's like this really uh, ominous dread in the interwar period. Can you talk about that? Also, Sartre comes to mind as a philosopher. Yeah, yeah, I do talk about that. Um, yeah, existentialism is brewing at this time. But when when I bring in Sartre in the book, it's in the it's in the terminus in that final chapter where I talk about interwar. Um, uh, sorry, uh, World War II searches through the hinterlands of the self. So uh, Sartre is one of those people. He gets sent to, it's called the phony war, when uh, basically France knew they were going to be in a war with Germany, but they were kind of waiting. So Sartre was mobilized, but also just spent a lot of time doing nothing. And he wrote in his journals, and he decided that the time was right to um, do an inventory of himself but also to understand what authenticity meant in that circumstance. So it's very interesting to see these ideas of authenticity that would be played out in this later work and this concern with authenticity overall are starting right during this period, uh, at the end of the interwar period, precisely in this moment of um, non-mobility or enforced non-mobility, I guess I could say. And also genre writing? You have adventure novel writers, you have letter writers, creative nonfiction, memoir, and of course, travel writers. Um, are these writers writing in the same genre? Oh, the travel writers? Uh, not, yes. not necessarily. I mean, most of them are writing travelogues. Not, not the, not the, again, not the last chapter where I talk about the self-study in an uh, immobile context. But all of them before were writing, as if we're in the first chapter when I talk about Conrad, all the rest were writing travelogues. Um, whether it was like Michel Larry's uh, scientific journal, started off as a scientific journal for a kind of uh, ethnographic mission that was crossing Africa from, from west to east, uh, to the uh, someone like Robert Byron writing a travel narrative that's meant to entertain the home audience that's really, you know, making up dialogue and, and stuff like that. So really, sometimes with very different purposes, or like Hemingway in Death in the Afternoon, writing what he kind of sets up as a model for, um, for Americans to take his book and to come to a Spanish bullfight and be able to navigate it and understand it. So so they're all, they're all travel logs in some sense, but I guess the guiding impulse can be different in some ways, I would say. 
what about translations when it came to these? How, how significant were translations for you? Um, you mean you, you did you do transis- translations or were yeah. you reading already translated material? No, no, I did the work in the original. It's a um, bilingual book or book with bilingual origins. I uh, comprises work that I did in the United States, but also a lot of research that I did in France, including looking at secondary material criticism, French criticism, and that's in the book. And um, sometimes I've been able to find translations for some of the stuff that I'm writing about, but other times I've had to uh, provide those translations myself. And one of the things I was excited about in publishing inclusively, you know, publishing open access, well, my book's both in print and public and open access, is that uh, the reader who, who is reading along and who knows French simply has to hover the cursor over the footnote or endnote and the French will pop up. So there, there are ways in, that publishing a, uh, open access is just amazing for in terms of trying to do something bilingual or trilingual and something we really didn't have before. We don't have the reader having to go to the back of the book every, you know, holding a hand in the back of the book and going back and forth, but it's rather right there, right there to be seen. So I would say that's, that's the translation in the, um, that's the translation in the book. And then, and then of course the actual translation, and then of course the metaphor of the translator as uh, or a cultural, tra- or the traveler as a cultural translator that I talk about a bit, and that's um, that's that's something that's not new to me. Many people have talked about that. James Clifford, perhaps the anthropologist or ethnographic uh, scholar, James Clifford would be one who talked about that. Or the um, translation theorist Susan Bassnett has talked about that as the the traveler's cultural translator. Can you go deeper into the idea of cultural translation? Um, you mentioned uh, motifs like masculinity um, and gender dynamics. What What are the big cultural norms that you mention in your work? Uh, in terms of cultural translation? Well, cultural translation here in the sense of a person thinking of... Uh, a person abroad and that being the source text in some ways, the original text, and then having the uh, travel writer translate that culture, translate what's going on for the reader, for the presumed reader. So there's a lot of things that are interesting with that. Um, one of them is the need to, or the, um, the way in which people see absolutely no uh, impediments to their cultural mastery you'll have these travel writers talking uh, with the absolute um, kind of uh, gloss of expertise and talking about other cultures, even though they were encountering them for the first time, most often in a state of uh, not maybe not complete ignorance, but a qualified ignorance. But the idea was that they would go somewhere where people hadn't been and translate for the culture. Um, perhaps I, Places that, that really where you see this a lot is in um, Hemingway's Death in the Afternoon, where he takes uh, he takes everything and makes it palatable to the to the American reader he's writing for. And one of the things he does in there is he makes a glossary of terms to do with the Spanish bullfight that's almost a hundred pages long, 
And interesting thing about the uh, glossary is that there are words in the glossary that aren't even in the main body of the book. So you absolutely have to read the glossary to get everything that you can out of the book. But what the glossary does, basically, it doesn't it doesn't give you a word for word cut down or analysis. It's not like that. It'll be a word that a Spanish word, then a paragraph about what that means, what that means in the context, when it's good, when it's bad, uh, what that means for traveling there, what that means for the Spanish bullfight. So I would say that that is, is a really good example of the kind of cultural translation that's going on, departing from one simple Spanish word to a whole um, a whole depiction. Like one of the things I talk about in the book is uh, Hemingway uses the word tacones, which means heels, like heel for shoe. And there are, um, I guess in Spain at this time, there are people who fixed heels and shine shoes and things like that. And Hemingway talks about that and then talks about how there's one that's a, um, a thief and, um, you know, look out for him, right? Look out for him and you'll recognize him because of the scar I left on his cheek. So he's pointing to a real person, but at the same time, he's admitting that he knifed someone in the face. So there are things like that uh, that come out of this cultural translation that are so shocking and um, I've read a lot of, uh, trans, uh, sorry, excuse me, criticism of Death in the Afternoon, but nobody's ever mentioned that before. The fact that Hemingway cops to st- stabbing someone in the face and, you know, pr- presumably counting on the fact that he's rich and American to not have to suffer any consequences for it. But that kind of thing you can see going on, not just in, in Spain, not just in European context, but overall a kind of um, power to the to the traveler over over the indigenous population like that. Not not necessarily stabbing people in the face. That's an extreme example, but it's an example nonetheless. Sub-Saharan Africa is a really large component of uh, interwar itineraries, um, as well as French ethnographies and taxonomies, which you mentioned. Um, can you go into more depth about how Sub-Saharan Africa and why it's such a big, large piece of your work? Yes, it, you know, it was really popular during the interwar period. And um, in France, there was something called La Negre, which means black art, basically. And there became a fascination with all things African, although it was a really weird fetish, excuse me, fetishizing um movements and involved uh, not only bringing things out of Africa and again, using this idea of Africa writ large as opposed to specific places, you know, like the Congo or Burkina Faso or something like that. Um, And, uh, but in their interest in things African, they also included interest in, um, in African American culture. So they put it all together and as, as black art and read it together. And so, and, and even to the point of novels being um, uh, written, Roman Negra, which take place in Africa, but are written by Europeans who've never been to Africa. So there was a lot of interest in, in that part of the world. There was a lot of interest in uh, the culture, various cultures, masks, um, uh, for Hemi- in Hemingway's case, hunting, um, 
in in Graham, Graham Greene's case, some traveling somewhere that he believes has not been traveled it before. Journey without maps, he calls it. You know, there are no maps. There's nobody been there before. But someone like Larisse, Michelle Larisse, on the other hand, was part of a massive ethnographic mission that went all the way from, um, I can't remember exactly where they started on the west coast of Africa, but all the way to east to Djibouti, uh, spending a lot of time in Ethiopia. And it was an ethnographic mission, so they were looking to find out things about the art, culture, languages, and so forth. But looking back now, or maybe looking back still a long time from now, uh, before, they did things like uh, steal artifacts. And a lot of the stuff that we're hearing about today in terms of where did these things in the museum come from? How did how how were they taken? What was the context in which they were brought back to France to the Museum of Man, it was called. So so at the same time, you have seemingly what seems like something perhaps good, an idea in codifying different languages and understanding different cultures. But actually, you're talking about a lot of theft and, and a lot of other problematic stuff like that. So I would say, just saying from that, that the interest in Africa is manifold. You've got Graham Greene looking for an unchartered um, territory. You've got Hemingway looking to um, prove himself on a safari. And then you've got Michelle Larisse, who's there for two years on this mission. And again, the, fetish, the fetishizing, the, the way of self-discovery through... Um, people or places there, it can be really bothersome. Uh, for instance, uh, Larissa feels the big failure of his trip. And what he dilates on quite a bit is that he has not had sexual relations with an indigenous woman. And so when we, we read things like that, we can really see the, the very problematic underbelly of these um, quests, whether they're scientific quests, whether they're hunting quests, whether whatever quests they are, um, there's an underbelly or maybe even an overbelly. Maybe, maybe it's, we, we don't have to say it's hidden. It's right there in the book. So, um, so I would say that, that that would be that in terms of thinking about also um, more in France, you have someone like Céline who, who actually had gone to um, um, Sub-Saharan Africa in, in the military and got sick, but then writing about, writing about that there, writing about what he found there. And then also about someone like uh, Evelyn Waugh, who, who went to cover the coronation of Haile Selassie in Ethiopia and then wrote books um, really honestly just making fun of what he saw so very very problematic and i always wonder why why is authenticity staged in such a problematic way why does it involve um going to these places uh you know lusting after people um you know stealing from people uh laughing at people um you know, all kinds of things like that. So I, I talk about that quite a bit in my book. It's kind of like I said at the beginning, the book is not exactly an endorsement for the the books I'm reading. Some of them I would highly recommend, but others, um, I'm, I'm not there to tear them apart, but I'm, I'm there to look at them quite critically, quite critically at times. The NRF, uh, what is the NRF and what other 
acronyms are in here. Oh, the NRF. Yeah, that's a big one. The Nouvelle Revue Française. That was the um, premier uh, literary journal in France during this period, and actually long after this and, uh, and before it. Um, it really did everything to publish uh, up-and-coming writers, not just French writers, but also international writers. And it also had a publishing house attached to it. So it ended up, for example, picking Conrad to be the first in its international series thereby really um, augmenting his reputation in France so that he actually became a French writer. I mean, popular in France, excuse me, extremely popular in France before he came, became popular in England, where he was writing in English. So that was the Nouvelle Revue Française. Um, they, they had some writers that they, they, uh, didn't, they didn't see the, the genius of, like Joyce, for example, and sometimes they're associated with those failures to have recognized something uh, like that. But uh, so that's the NRF. And I'm trying to remember what other kind of acronyms are in the book. And I'm drawing a blank. I think, All right. It's fine. I think that's um, the main one. I think that's the main I use it a lot, NRF. Yes. Um, what about travel writers who weren't foreign? Uh, what about hometown guides or people who were traveling but not really traveling, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that absolutely does. That absolutely does. Um, yeah, it's, I, excuse me, <clears throat> not not so much in the body, in the main body of the book, but again, in that last um, chapter there, you have people who are immobile and forced immobility. And so during the war years, they're confronting themselves and their own, their own culture and themselves in that culture. So it becomes a trend, I think, more than that. And there is a lot of that. There's a lot of that in um, uh, Orwell's Down and Out in Paris and London. Uh, you see that. But for the most part, this book looks at, with the exception of that last chapter and going off into the direction of the Second World War, for the most part, this book looks at um, the search elsewhere for other places where life is better and happier and pleasure is more easily attained and you know just the the romance of other places is something i'm really interested in more than i I mean for this book more than the internal journey because there also is the what uh anthropologists call the internal exotic which would mean absolutely going into one's own culture and finding what's foreign in one's own culture and dealing with that or simply not doing any kind of exoticizing like that and simply uh, writing a kind of book about one's own one's own travels across one's own land, but that that is not uh, the project of the book. As fascinating as I find that topic, it's not the project of the book. Is primitivism always associated with indig- Um The or or what about Anglophone nativity, so to speak? I don't know about that. I I'm not sure I would answer that. Um, well, I mean, in popular sense, we use primitive, primitive and primitivism a lot to speak about things in, in our own culture, right? And often it's not, it's not often used in a very good way. Primitivism and primitive have been something, have been words that have shown to have a lot of violence surrounding them over the years. But I don't think it necessarily has to do with 
it doesn't it does in in the book but i think in in uh outside the book and in other parts of life primitivism can refer to uh earlier stages of of humankind and not necessarily those outside of the place where one is living in so one talks about primitive uh uh, bowls, primitive uh, expressions, primitive uh, noises, right? So, so I think it's it's polyvalent, but it's used. Uh, it might it might even be used more now in the sense of one's own culture. Things that are primitive, people talking about that in terms of uh, things being, you know, again that whole hierarchy of things being not evolved, right? Talk about primitive base instincts as opposed to primitive meaning in the case of uh, like some surrealists like Tristan Zara, uh, a mask from the Congo, right? Or, or, or some rhythms that he's discovered and now wants to play on his drums. So I think that the word primitive has seen a shift. Have you studied religious beliefs and theology? Um, and where is it make an appearance. I, I remember reading about Isaac Dennison's Ages of Man in Christianity. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I haven't. I That's not as much a field of expertise, although I did, um, before I came to Alabama, I did teach for four years at Villanova, which is a, a Catholic university, and uh, I taught the core course there. And so I've read, uh, and before that, another place where I was teaching in the humanities, so I've read a lot of religion and religious writings, excuse me, but it doesn't necessarily make it into my work. Um, I do talk about Isaac Dinesen, but I don't talk about that so much. I really talk about her farm and her um, approach to the indigenous people who live on her land and her sense of, again, a sense of, t- of total mastery that she feels but I would say for the most part, the writers I look at are secular and, um, you know, perhaps their, excuse me, perhaps their religion is authenticity, but most of them, most of them are secular. Um, so again, maybe religion is one of the big truths with the capital T or with a capital R that got tested during the um, First World War. A lot of people lost their faith. In, in those kinds of institutions of, you know, uh, churches and so forth, government, and so forth. So I think um, in some ways, with the exception of Denison, it's a, it's a pretty secular book. You also use the example of critical illness, especially with the novel Journey to the End of the Night um, and coming to and from France, France and Africa. Can you describe the dread or danger motifs aside from just sickness uh, in Africa, one example uh, were were dangerous airplanes during the interwar era. Yes, absolutely. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, another one would be, I mean, there's such a set of motifs. It's it's crazy and how much they echo each other, whether it's Evelyn Waugh writing some kind of nasty comedy or if it's Michelle Larry's trying to do something scientific or it's Celine trying to show the the rotten core of everything in the universe. But one of the things that I would um, say is food. So you've got foods, the the problematic of eating food and getting sick. And uh, it's amazing how many writers talk about it or write eating tinned food, the dangers of food, and then also the kind of colonialism of it in which 
for example, Isaac Dinesen has her cooks um, who, who are all indigenous uh, to Kenya. She has them learn how to cook um, European food and European delicacies. So there's so, so there's stuff like that as well. So that would be that would be one thing. It would be sickness would be one thing. Um, and then you know, I mean, it's 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 just so racist and horrible to think about. But people still talked about cannibalism and um, Graham Greene in Journey Without Maps talks about. Um, running into some people on his trek when he's when he's pretty far from anywhere uh, where other people have been and and uh, he, he comes to uh, talk to a young man who tells him that that uh, some people there uh, chop people and he takes this to mean um, that there's cannibalism and uh, so that was like one of the last r- rumors. And it, it's, it's kind of shocking to see it still in the literature of the interwar period. You think it would have been debunked, but it's still there. And it's still there a little bit in, uh, in Gide, who's going there to talk about colonial excesses and going there seemingly as a champion for people in these, in these countries, but at the same time falls into that um, trap of, of, uh, thinking about uh, cannibalism, so I would say that those are some of the principal motifs. Um, can you describe the significance of phantom Africa or phantasms in your research? Yeah, especially its relationship to surrealism and poetry. Mm-hmm. Well, the phantom Africa is the name of Michel Larisse's book. And Michel Larisse was, uh, in, in, in his early years, a surrealist, very much so. And so I see in some ways that idea coming out of surrealism, again, that idea coming out of surrealism of the primitive, again, in quotes, right? We know, you know the primitivism is, is, is messed up, but uh, the primitivism, the, uh, the idea of... Um, a concept, as Grant Green would say, I'm kind of paraphrasing, but a concept that is larger than any specific place. So I would say a lot of writers who I'm writing about thought about Africa in that way. They go to specific places, but they talk about Africa. And I talk about writing about this in my book because I, I want to, in my book, acknowledge specific places in detail, but they themselves talk about Africa. They're not talking about Liberia or uh, Sierra Leone or Ethiopia, uh, Larice, of course, who's on the kind of scientific ethnographic mission. But for them, it's, it's an idea much bigger than any specific place that they, and it's idea that they carry with them, uh, informed by a lot of things, informed by adventure stories, informed by Conrad, the heart of darkness, and so forth. So I think, I think I would say that this idea that something is in its essence kind of ontologically bigger than any specific thing and and that's very problematic and uh i think it's still very much with us today um when people talk about travel and when people talk about going to the african continent in terms of thinking about going to specific places talking about specific places even knowing specific places there's there's such an ignorance there and so i think that kind of persists a little bit 
unfortunately, in our day. Um, what was your most arduous setback when it came to researching this book, um, especially on Sub-Saharan Africa? Did you find it hard to get source material or to to or the right readings to read? Uh, I did that research in France, and no, I did not. I'm trying to think what the most difficult part of this. Um, it's, I need to just take a second to think about that. The most. Um, you know what the most arduous thing is? This is going to sound really banal, but if I found something in French, so say, for example, I found something in Journey to the End of the Night by Céline, is to go to the French version or vice versa and find the same passage in the other book. I would say that was the most arduous thing because a lot of the stuff I've written down in French, I read it initially in French, but I wanted to, if there's an authorized translation, then you have to do that. So then going back and trying to find a, a sentence, a paragraph in a massive book, I would say that was arduous. That was very arduous. Uh, going back again to travel, how extensively did you travel for research? Oh, not too extensively. I, I was in France um, for a while, and that's uh, France and, and then just the rest here in the United States. So um, nothing too arduous, you know, I had a, it was, it was a little bit of an exchange program. So I was able to uh, exchange for a place there and then be affiliated with an institution and conduct research like that. So uh, it's a travel book without any arduous travel involved, I would say. What about aspects of of trade, so economic bartering, eco, the economics of guns, or bartering, the appropriation of Western culture. Um, should scholars be looking for the Africa in Africa or the French Anglophone in Africa? Uh, I, I think, I mean, now that now I've published this book that talks so much about Western uh, phantasms and things like this, but I think we should be hearing from people themselves. That's what I think. I, I want to hear voices. Um, that's why I'm excited by things like uh, academia.edu and the, the possibility of hearing directly from people in those places, not having that mediated through travel literature, generalizations or newspaper articles, but rather through direct contact and people telling their own stories, if that makes sense, if that's, if that's a decent answer to your question, if I understood it correctly. Um, I think it, it's the moment, it has been the moment for a long time to um, hear, from, hear from people themselves in whatever part of the uh, world we're talking about. Moving away from Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, what what other places or archetypes do you think we should know about for people who are interested in reading your book, like the Middle East, or what about the rest of the world? Well, I think that the chapter on Spain and, and Hemingway, um, The Death in the Afternoon, there's a whole chapter on that in there. I think that that, uh, that is something I think that is really interesting. And also can show that um, during that th during that time period, Spain was seen as a quote unquote primitive place where people explored primitive ideas through primitive practices 
like bullfighting. This, this is not my take on it. This is how it's presented. And so even places in Europe, which we don't, I think we don't tend to think of today as, um, you know, exotic in any sense, or hopefully we're moving away from using that term. But I would say, uh, I would say Spain, and then I would say all the places I look at in the third chapter, or, or the places where the authors go in the third chapter. So that would be um, Mexico and um, Afghanistan, and what was Persia and um, uh, Brazil. So actually, especially in the third chapter, there's a really broad range of places because what I do in the book is I kind of truffle hunt and hot air balloon. You know, I spend some time looking very closely like I do in the Hemingway chapter. And then I pull back and look from a, a much wider lens at a, at a pattern of people doing something. So I think going into the wider, like the hot air balloon, the wider lens and looking at pattern can be a good place to start in terms of thinking about what was going on in those other places. How were people representing those other places? And that's where I do a lot of comparative work as well. Um, can you explain what the pursuit of self-knowledge is? Is that an epistemology? Uh, <laughs> I wish I knew exactly what the pursuit of self-knowledge is, but it's something that, yeah, it's, an, it's something that's been with us for, it's a pursuit that's been with us probably as long as we've been us. <laughs> uh, but the pursuit of self-knowledge during the time of the book, I think had a lot to do with, um, again, this idea of the First World War kind of shaking the nostrums on which people rested their assumptions and sense of self. And with the influence of Freudianism too, this idea that one could go back, one could go back in time one could go back to the origin, you know, the real, especially Graham Greene, who just finished um, a case of uh, Freudian analysis before he came to Africa. He likens his pursuit of self-knowledge through analysis, for to Freudian analysis, to his desire to go back to Africa and again spatializing geography um, to go back to see where it all began and 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 what was at the what was at the heart of things, what was the beginning. So um, I would say that's that's where the pursuit of um, self-knowledge is, is in the knowledge that one can get by traveling to other places and contemplating them. As you see now, it's a very problematic pursuit. But then again, as I detail in the last chapter, the pursuit of self-knowledge, once people are frozen in space, becomes very much an inward journey, very different from any of this kind of exoticizing or staging of the self or fetishizing the other or anything like that and and becomes um a kind of a true inventory of the self so i think i think that's what i would say about the tricky question of pursuit of self-knowledge and finally nostalgia it comes up so many times in your book um what does nostalgia mean for you in your study in the study it means a lot of times i talk about um subjunctive nostalgia. I talk about proleptic nostalgia. I talk about different kinds of nostalgia. One of the ones I think is so interesting to the interwar period, and you especially see this in Hemingway, but the idea that you're nostalgic when you're in the middle of doing something, you're already nostalgic for it. So that that kind of 
trope by which you imagine already how you will be missing it. So he, in, in um, um, Green Hills of Africa, he says he's, you know, he sits out one night missing Africa already, but he's still there. And the same thing in, in uh, Death in the Afternoon, he is nostalgic for things that he's still in the middle of doing. And also along with that is this idea, and I think this goes back to the primitivism and all of that, um, is that um, he's nostalgic for, how would I put this? Um, well, he's nostalgic for things that haven't happened yet, but he's nostalgic also for a world he might not have even seen, but the pre-World War, the, pre, the world preceding the, pre, the, the First World War. So I think that's why, for example, Conrad was so popular and was so popular for the writers that I look at because he was seen to, to embody that world that they were nostalgic for, even if they were just children, even if they weren't even alive. They have this kind of nostalgia um, for a time when travel was different, for a time when true adventure was still available and all of these kinds of things like that. So I would say that would be the thing about nostalgia, would be this idea that you're nostalgic for things that you haven't even experienced. And secondly, you're nostalgic for things that you're still right in the middle of. Um, is there anything else you want our New Books Network audience to know? Um, what's your next project also, and how can people get in touch with you? Uh, well, people can get in touch with me through my Website. I've got my email address on there on my academic website. Right now, I'm working on a book called Modernism and Translation. So it's kind of I have two principal interests. One is life writing, and this book, um, this book we just talked about, falls under that. And then the other interest is translation. And then sometimes where they combine, as they do in this book. But in the next book, it's really about um, translation. And it's about modernism. In this book, we're saying it's not quite modernism. Not all the writers were modernist. But in the book I'm working on now, the writers are modernist. And um, so I'm excited about that. I'm about two-thirds done. And uh, uh, yeah, it's under contract. So uh, hopefully it'll be out in a few years. And um, yeah, uh, it'll, be, it'll be quite different from this book. All righty. Uh, it was nice talking to you, Dr. Whitman. Great to talk to you. Yes. So this has been an interview with New Books Network and the author, Emily O. Whitman. On behalf of NBN, we thank you, our audience, for listening to this podcast on history and literature. This is your host, Nathan Moore, signing out. <laughs>